Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Hacking HR podcast, the show where we talk about the amazing future of human resources and all things at the intersection of future of work, technology, innovation, organizations, transformation, and people. At Hacking HR, we believe that human resources can become the most important trailblazer, leading people and organizations successfully and effectively into the new reality of work and life. To do that, we must rise to the challenges of our times, shoot for the stars, and achieve our fantastic potential. During this show, we discuss ideas, insights, data, experiences, stories, and anything else that can contribute to helping you become and be a better HR leader and practitioner. Thank you so much for joining us today and enjoy the show. You can say that recruitment is one of the very uh, oldest and most traditional deliveries from any HR function. You know, just after you get the admin under control, the next step many HR functions take when they develop is to start recruiting and increasing the quality level of that for uh, any given company. Yet, what we have seen over the last 40, 50, 60 years is that in all basics, the recruitment processes have not changed. We are more or less doing it the same way today than we did 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago when I was just a very young uh, HR person. And, um, and I realized this and the door into realizing that was actually working with diversity policies in a couple of big companies over the last four or five years. Mats is a strategic thinker for a couple of decades in large international companies with international and global leadership experience. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Hacking HR podcast. Really excited to be connecting with Mats from Denmark. How are you, Mats? I'm very good, Enrique. Thank you very much. I hope the same for you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. It's, you know, one of the things that I that I have enjoyed the most out of the podcast, it's not just the conversations, it's the fact that I am connecting with people from all over the world, Europe, Africa, Asia, Latin America, and it's always incredible to have this worldview of issues that are common to all of us, but seen sometimes differently or perceived differently by different people around the world. So that, I think that's amazing. Can imagine that that must be fantastic. Yeah, great, yeah. Great job you got yourself there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and, and and I think this perhaps is the first time that I'm interviewing somebody from Denmark. If I if my memory is not failing me, so so really really happy to have this conversation. And and I know you've been doing a lot of work around biases and diversity inclusion. And one of the things that I know you've been working on is the reengineering of HR processes to reduce biases. One of them is recruitment, but you know, you've been uh, looking at, at separate processes. So, so let me ask you, what's, what happens in recruitment that we need to look at it and re-engineer re the process in order to, as much as possible, reduce the biases that are perhaps ingrained in, in recruitment or many other HR processes? Thank you, Enrique. Well, what is happening is maybe the question is might rather be what is not happening. You can say that recruitment is one of the very uh, oldest and most traditional deliveries from any HR function. You know, just after you get the admin under control, the next step many HR uh, functions take when they develop is to start recruiting and increasing the quality level of that 
for uh, any given company. Yet, what we have seen over the last 40, 50, 60 years is that in all basics, the recruitment processes have not changed. We are more or less doing it the same way today than we did 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago when I was just a very young uh, HR person. And, um, and I realized this and the door into realizing that was actually working with diversity policies in a couple of big companies over the last four or five years. So like, uh, like a lot of other companies, the companies that I worked for uh, the last many years also had to get stronger within diversity. And a typical starting point are policies. And we all know the policies start by discussions of very principal character and then a lot of careful wordsmithing to putting down in paper. And often it also takes a lot of little time before you start thinking about, so how does this in reality change things in real life? How do we make a real difference in this? And what I realized at some point is that if you go back to our roots, uh, if you go back, you, you know, we try to do diversity training, we do training in policies and so on, which is basically trying to re-engineer the most outer, lay outer layers of our employees, our colleagues and our leaders. We don't get you know, into the deep with that. In order to do that, we need to re-engineer the way that we select people. That we select people for when we hire them, but also when we select them, for instance, for promotions, it could be, it could be internal applications and so on. And I could not find anybody who did that. I will not claim that I researched the whole world, but when I looked around in my network, when I talked to search companies and so on, everybody did it in the old ways. It's like this thing about having a feel for the candidate has for decades been the key. But we all know that the feel is exactly looking for, for people who look like me, yeah. who fit my own biases, right? Yeah. So that was, that was the starting point of, of all this. Well, no, that, that, that is amazing. And, and let me ask you, what, why? I mean, why, what made you think about, start to think about this process differently? What was the trigger point that began that process? Well, the trigger point is a, is a personal preference. You might even call it a bias, but at least a preference <laughs> in the sense that I've done lots of policies over the years and I am so interested in understanding how you make policies work. And, you know, a moment of sadness probably for many people, not just HR people, is that when you make a policy that you know that the value of it does not reach beyond the piece of paper or, mm. or the internet web page that it is written on, then you know that you have more or less wasted your time or just done something to, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's. So I have a personal drive towards making stuff work. So let's make policies, that's fine. But let's not stop there. Let's find out how do we make it work. And, and that was that personal affinity that led me to try to understand how do we get beyond the policies? How do we get beyond the, the, the you know, unconscious bias training? I talked to some people a, a year or so ago who, who does business within unconscious bias training, and they do a lot of good work. They do a lot of good analysis with companies. They do a lot of um, interaction with top-level management teams. But in my opinion, they don't get to the root of where it starts, which is that thinking that you can compensate for biases, I think, is wrong. You need to re-engineer the process 
so that you don't expose yourself to biases or at least defer, push into the future, the point of exposure to biases. You need to sort of fill the basket of data before you start filling the, the, the basket of impressions and perceptions yeah. and so on. And if you think back, and you just interrupt me, interrupt me, Ricky, if I keep talking too long. Absolutely. For many years, a lot of us in HR have worked with tests, for instance. And at least in Denmark, it has been, as we say, good Latin, that you never test a candidate until you are fairly far in the process. For ethical reasons, uh, but also maybe also for uh, reasons that are, are about, uh, let's say, HR culture, HR culture in the sense that if we have to, if we have to uh, legitimize our own uh, presence in a recruitment process, we have to show up with something that's important. And if that importance can be replaced by a test, then we become less important. But that importance that we would like to put in there is our extraordinary abilities in understanding candidates and translating that understanding to the hiring manager. But if we have to be honest, that's just another set of biases. Yeah, yeah. I I want to ask you this, I, I and I want to go a little deeper into the into the idea and and the nuances of the engineering of the recruitment process. Yes. But I want to expand this question even beyond recruitment because you're talking about policies. You're talking about us delivering or trying to create a policy that then it doesn't add value beyond the piece of paper. Why is that? Why does that happen? And I have seen the same thing, but not just in the world of recruitment. I've seen it in the world of many other areas like performance, learning, and even the basic things such as compliance or um, uh, uh, or compensation where HR spends so much time developing a policy that is counterintuitive. It's not adding value, but instead ends up adding roadblocks for people to achieve you know, things that work. So why is it that we are not reaching that level of value with the policies that we may be creating? Well, it, it's a very big question and it can be answered for, from many, many directions. And let me just try to see if I can answer from quickly from a few directions. One direction is that, that HR people, also people, they also have a make, make their space in the world. And if the space you can make is within complicated uh, policies within compensation and benefits, then some people might take that space. It could also be that not all HR people are qualified, are are competent. It may just be that they are not very good at their job, which happens in all areas of life. Mm -hmm. It could also be that the HR people who work with this have received unclear guidance uh, from their management in the sense of what is it that we want to achieve with this. I've worked with lots of HR people and met in my network too who want to do a good job, but they don't get sufficient time with management to discuss or get input to what is important. And discussing how policies have to work uh, within, no matter within what area takes time. Yeah. And especially if you are run or led by a manager whose understanding of uh, making this work is simplistic uh, or maybe based on based on his or her experience which is just which is basically you know just make it work um, so uh, and and the final thing is that in any given company if you are CEO or leadership team you have policies in 
many areas you have yeah. to take care of. And if you don't give sufficient uh, empowerment to HR, then you will not get them to make sure that the policies that are made are actually ones that work. So going back to discussing what is the purpose of any given policy? Why do we have a diversity policy? Why do we have a you know, pay for performance policy? If you don't have that discussion, and it doesn't have to be lengthy and academic, you will almost never get to a point where you will have a policy that works closely to your expectations. And, and let me take this, actually what you're just saying, and, and ask you this follow-up follow question. What I, I know all policies are different, and they try to tackle different areas of the work of HR and the organization, but are there common elements that when you take them into account for the design of those policies, they can get you closer to being successful in the design of those uh, policies? Are, they, are there elements common to across the board? Yes, I think there are. There is one element, and I have to admit also that that is a preference of mine, that is that, you know, that is to make it simple. Many policies mm. fail also in my opinion, because you try to, to do the perfect, perfect all encompassing policy in one go. Yeah. Which means that it, it, it is the parallel is that you, uh, you sit down and develop Microsoft Windows and you never tried in the market before it's perfect. And all of us who use Windows knows that then it will never come to the market. So you need to bring your policy to the market you need to test it. You need to let it get its feet wet. You need to find out where the simple version does not work because parts of it will work. No. And if you are nervous, if you're in a very big company, if you are across many cultures, okay, then try it out in part of your company. Try it out in one location. Try it out in the department. You know, use real life uh, testing also policies. I mean, you can do you can call it scrum or you can call it prototyping or whatever you want to call it but this thing about developing things in the closed lab and until it's perfect we know from a lot of other things that that is not the way to do it make your policies in the same way as you make your products i like it which by the way and i'm going to use this as a segue to 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 ask you about something else you you just said something which to me is key Think about your policies as if you were developing a product. That that creates some sort of sense sense of urgency in HR to think about, to think like product managers or to think like product developers. And we know that that skill is not a skill that has been in the world of HR for, I mean, at all, if, if, if you will. So let me ask you, what do you think are the skills or the capabilities that HR needs to embrace or to learn from, from scratch in order to be effective at doing the work of developing effective policies, policies that actually work? Oh, oh my God. I mean, I, while you were asking that question, I had this parallel thinking that, 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 um, that you cannot imagine a sales or marketing person not testing their product with customers yeah. or with focus groups uh, or so on. I think that maybe part of HR's challenge is that, that um, you know, HR has been the staff function of all staff functions. It's been sort of the secret uh, chamber where, where the, all the sensitive stuff has been made. Uh, change management has been made difficult over the years. And a lot of the things about HR, talent management, succession planning, how do we pay our people and so on, 
are often made more difficult or sensitive uh, than it is because it's kept, yeah. uh, because the, our fantasies make it yeah. sensitive. No, test it out with your people, talk to your organization, uh, uh, accept the fact that when you talk to them, not everybody will like what you do. Maybe that's another issue for HR is that we are, we are so, so much looking for the organization to like us that, <laughs> that, that the, we, we don't like that any products that comes out of HR are not liked from anybody. And the risk is that it's liked by nobody or only by management, which at the end of the day decides our employment. Um, so, so I think that, that and, and then you can go back to say, is, are we back to the old story of HR's low self-esteem? I think that's probably uh, overdoing it. I think by after three or four decades, we should be over that. And I think most HR people that I talk to, they are beyond that. But this thing about no matter whether you are an HR manager in a 100 people company or you are in a 10,000 people company, have the courage to go and test your products, believe that the organization actually would like the things that you do. Yeah. So when you get feedback, that you get it from a, you know, from a positive standpoint and not a degrading one. I, I love that. And that's, uh, you know, in all fairness, I think that's, that's a very different kind of mindset than traditional HR. Because like you said before, and I've experienced that in my career as well, of course, HR people are used to being the secret chamber where they develop some kind of, uh, you know, um, policy, which they don't even test out in the internal market of the company they put out. And then they wonder why people hate it or why they have to be explained over and over and over again, how to use whatever is within the policy. It's because it's, it ends up being very counterintuitive at the end of the day. It's, it's, uh, it doesn't really make sense because it was never, people, people, people's voices were never taken into account in the development development of that policy, let alone in the testing or prototyping uh, phases, uh, if you will. So, so I'm loving that we are, in HR, I think we are awakening even more this sense of product manager, design thinkers, so that we can actually test something before we put it out there or before we develop it end to end. So let me bring this conversation back to recruitment. Yes. You talked about re-engineering recruitment. What the people who work in this field that are trying to do that, that are trying to think differently about recruitment, in what, in what areas should they be focusing on when they are thinking about re-engineering, re-engineering or reimagining their recruitment process? Okay, so let's, let's start with what is it that we would like to avoid what is it that what is sort of the our Achilles heel at the moment? Mm. Our Achilles heel at the moment, if you look at if you aim for uh, for diversity and expanding the actual talent base that you've got, whether it's external candidate or internal candidate, is that the way that recruitment processes are set up today and the way the systems that support these processes are set up today is that they start by presenting you with data that drives your biases. So the first thing you see is to you, you first you see people's names, so you know whether they are male or female, and they might be a different sexual orientation, but that's a marginal. You will know where they live. You will might be able to, uh, to decode their color of their skin or their, their racial information. You would see what age they are, or you can guess it very quickly. Uh, you will know where they're located. Had they, uh, they gone to the same school that you did? All these kind of things straight in your face is the first thing you see in a classic CV screen. Yeah. 
So the point is, how do you avoid that? Some applicant tracking systems are starting to be able, but I don't think that they're doing it very well yet, are starting to be able to make you choose not to see these data. So that's one step, but that's still not enough yeah. because we all know that if you read down through the CV, you'd be able to, to, to find some of these information still. So what you want to do, going back to my, my metaphor about the data basket versus the perception basket, you want to get stuff into your data basket to, to leverage, to give you some counterweight to your perception basket before you get to the perception basket. So what could that be? One thing that I've been working with, I'm using it actually right now, is to have candidates do a case. So there are companies out there, they're typically very small still, but they allow you to, they deliver to you a platform uh, where you can run a case-based selection process. So the, can you send the candidates in there? You have case uh, prepared question, case questions that are relevant for the job you're talking about. And you have pre-prepared uh, answers. So if I get this answer or the case answers uh, addresses these topics, it's a 10 score. If these, if these things are missing, it's a five score. It's if these things are missing, it's a two score or something to that extent. So that will enable you to be exposed to the candidate's knowledge, mm. experience, ability to uh, come up with solutions, to be creative on organizational contextual data. Uh, that will give you something in the data basket before you get in the other one. And is it perfect? No, it's not. But it's a good start to try to expose yourself from that kind of thinking because the perception basket, don't worry about it. It's going to be fully loaded at some point anyhow. So, so in my point of view, that's, uh, that's, one way, uh, that's one way of doing it. You may also choose, which I'm doing in a current uh, uh, recruitment uh, task I have for a customer. You could also uh, add uh, doing, for instance, aptitude tests, having the candidate mm -hmm. do aptitude tests on top of the case test that gives you even more data in that basket before you do the other basket. And I know you can have long discussions, especially HR people of what test measures and don't measure and so on. Don't complicate it because what you're really doing is argue against something that is running in the back of your mind unconsciously that you don't have control over anyhow. No. Absolutely. I, 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 like, I like the idea of... Um you know, def defining this process by by tapping more into into the into a real case, uh, you know, scenario where people are developing something rather than just looking at their resumes or asking them yes or no kind of questions and whatnot. So, so okay. Matt, we if I can add one thing, Enrique, what also happens is that the case you develop is typically a situation where you sit down and say, so what are the real problems I will have this candidate solve when they get into the job? And what you get is real answers. If you have a job ad and a CV, you have one piece of marketing to comparing to another piece of marketing, yeah. which is fair enough because that's how the, that's how the game is. Yeah. But you want to get out of that game. And that's another element where the case-based selection is super interesting. I and and I, I I love it. And actually, you, you're making me think about something that we are developing on Hacking HR, which is certifications that are based on resolving business cases rather than by answering, you know, questions that you learned how to answer because you memorized a book. 
Uh, it's a totally different game that we are talking about here. So, Matt, as, as we wrap up this conversation, I want to ask you this last question. For people in recruitment, HR leaders, talent acquisition leaders that are rethinking their HR, their recruitment processes, what do you think should be the first step for them in the journey of transforming or re-engineering their recruitment process? What should be the first thing they should be thinking about? The first thing they should be thinking about is how can I get one recruitment case where this will make sense to do and where I can get the hiring manager or the business to buy in doing that. Mm-hmm. And the, most likely you would, any of the people who listen to this will have a recruitment that is hard for them to solve. And the, re, the thing is that it might be hard to solve because some of the filters that the candidates are being seen through are biases, yeah. which will deselect people that might be good candidates. So take a difficult recruitment, mid-level, not too high, not too low. It has to have importance. Get the business on board doing that and then get your feet wet. Try it in real life. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, Mats, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you. It's been super fun. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, everybody. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Hacking Nature Podcast. See you all soon. Thank you, everybody, for watching or listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please follow us on our social media and subscribe to our newsletter so that you can stay informed of all the things that we're putting together for you from the Hacking HR community. Thank you so much. Please continue to stay safe, stay well, stay strong, and we will see you soon.